Even if you're not an expert on fairy tales, you're probably familiar with the story of Hansel and Gretel, as related by the Grimm brothers in their collections. At the behest of his wife, stepmother to his two children, a father sends his son and daughter, Hansel and Gretel, out into the forest because they cannot afford to be kept at home. Whilst wandering through the trees, the unfortunate siblings happen across a house, seemingly made of gingerbread. Tired and hungry, they're enticed inside by the inhabitant with the promise of plenty of sweet treats. Things turn nasty, of course, when the old woman turns out to be a bad witch. She ensnares Hansel and Gretel and locks Hansel in a cage and forces Gretel to work with the sole purpose of fattening Hansel up and roasting him for her dinner. Fortunately, young Hansel and his sister are smart cookies. They outwit the evil witch and dispatch her in her own oven before escaping with all of the spoils of the cottage. Returning home, they discover that the wicked stepmother has died and they are able to live happily ever after with their somewhat guilty father. Every story, of course, is not what it first appears to be. Katharina Schraderin was born in 1618 in the Harz Mountains in Germany. Later in life, she became famous as a baker and created a recipe for gingerbread, which was so good that it sold throughout the markets and fairs of southern Germany. This attracted the attention of the town baker of Nuremberg, who tried in vain to court the girl, first on his own turf, before eventually following her back to her birthplace. He hounded Katerina for so long that she eventually left all of her belongings, save her baking tools, and left town. She resettled in a cottage in the Spetsart Forest, not far from Frankfurt, and set up a new baking industry there, using four stone ovens to bake her gingerbread. Once again, she found success and became quite famous. In the 1960s, amateur archaeologist Georg Oseg uncovered the remains of Katharina's cottage, including the four stone ovens. But he also uncovered a lot more than that. Oseg was able to trace court papers which showed that Hans Metzler, the baker from Nuremberg who courted Katharina Schraderin, had denounced her as a witch. The woman had always protested her innocence, despite repeated torture by the investigators who tried in vain to extract a confession. Oseg further went on to prove that 37-year-old Hans Metzler took his sister, Greta, three years his junior, into the forest where they broke into Schraderin's cottage, murdering the woman and burning the body in one of her own ovens before making off with the gingerbread recipe. Recent exhibitions in Ulm Museum, Germany and the University of Marburg displayed both the rediscovered court documents and photographs of the dig site, as well as some recovered artefacts, including a charred wooden rolling pin. These events appear to be so similar to the basic elements of the Grimm's collected version of Hansel and Gretel that they must have inspired the morality tale which became a fairy tale favourite. There's only one flaw in the whole analysis. Amateur archaeologist Georg Oseg never existed. And neither did Katharina Schraderin. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Welcome to the Folklore Podcast.
the beliefs, traditions, and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. very first episode of the Folklore Podcast, we examined the creation of the Slenderman myth and spoke about how a fictitious creation could be tracked entering the folklore record as the boundaries become blurred between story and belief. Once an idea or a story enters a belief system, it will never truly leave, no matter how strong the evidence against it seems. This is true for science and history as much as it is for the supernatural or paranormal. Dr Andrea Kitter spoke on how it was the case with Slenderman, and we find it to a lesser degree with this story. I tell you this because the bones of the story surrounding the archaeologist Georg Oseg, which I gave in the introduction to this episode, I cited not from the book about which I will talk shortly, but from a website, which I won't name, but which tells the story of Hans Metzler and Katharina Schraderin as true and it's not the only example. Let's try and put some flesh on the bones of this story, and see where it leads. The details of the researches and excavations undertaken by the non-person, Georg Oseg, were detailed in a book called, in English, The Truth About Hansel and Gretel. It was published in 1963, and the author was German caricaturist Hans Traxler. Traxler was born in Czechoslovakia in 1929 and moved first to Bayern in Germany in 1945 and then to Frankfurt in 1951. It was here that he began to undertake his studies of art. A large part of his career was taken up with satire in one form or another, this being one way in which the truth about Hansel and Gretel has been described. In 1962, Traxler was one of the co-founders of Pardon, a satirical newspaper which was published in its original form in what was then West Germany until 1982. It was later relaunched for a while and is now in its third generation, enjoying a readership of one and a half million and a circulation of somewhere around 320,000 copies. After conflicts with the publisher of Pardon, a number of former contributors and editors, including Traxler, broke away and created the satirical magazine Titanic, in 1979. Traxler's book, The Truth About Hansel and Gretel, contained many clues as to the fact that it was not authentic, but was otherwise presented as a totally genuine piece of non-fiction writing. It was done so cleverly that the story quickly gained traction, and many people at the time believed that it was true. Even today there are people who think the same, as I intimated in the introduction. 
let's examine the evidence as presented by Traxler through the medium of his amateur archaeologist Georg Oseg and see how so many may have been taken in by the book. In doing so, I am indebted to Claudia Schwaber of Utah State University, who gave me permission to draw upon her own writing and research. Be careful to remember the veracity of the story as we go through it. Oseg was born in Prague in 1919. Since a child, he always suspected that there was more to Grimm's fairy tales than met the eye, and took the stories as having their roots in truth rather than being fictitious. At the age of 11, for example, he undertook experiments to prove that if sweet porridge was cooked for a long time, it would multiply in size such that eventually it would be capable of filling a whole street. Of course, his experiment did not succeed, but rather than deter Oseg, it just caused him to reformulate his possible explanations. He concluded that there was a different explanation for the phenomena as presented by the Grimms. Hungry people often suffer from hallucinations. Oseg found inspiration in the works of Heinrich Schleimann. This 19th century archaeologist refused to take Homer's writings in the Iliad as a myth without being based in reality, and so he travelled to Asia Minor to hunt for the ruins of Troy, using Homer as his guide. Schleimann was successful in finding ruins in the year 1870, although many people today doubt that they are actually those of the city of Troy. In The Truth About Hansel and Gretel, photos are presented of Georg Oseg at his dig site with a copy of an illustrated edition of Grimm's fairy tales under his arm, in the same way that Heinrich Schleimann carried the Iliad. The tale of Hansel and Gretel became the story upon which Oseg focused most, and in 1945, towards the end of the Second World War, he had the chance to find the first clues that would lead him on his trail. Oseg was an assistant teacher at this point, and, along with his students, he was evacuated to the village of Steinau as the Eastern Front crossed Germany. It was here, in the state of Hesse, that the Grimms had lived during their childhood. In the Spetsart forest, Oseg met a farmer who called the woods Hexenwald, meaning witch's forest. The farmer explained that his grandfather maintained that he had seen a witch's house in the forest years before. Oseg realised that this could be a possible clue, due to the Grimms having lived in the area. But shortly after this, the end of the war was declared, and he had no opportunity to follow up the lead. He returned to Prague to complete his studies, and married after graduating as a lecturer. Finally, he moved with his wife to Frankfurt. Here the story ends for a while, until we fast forward to the year 1962, where we find Oseg getting a promotion and relocating to the Bavarian city of Aschaffenburg to take up a position teaching in the local gymnasium, that is, German secondary school. Geographically, this is close to the Spetsart Forest, and so Oseg is again in the area once described to him as a Hexenwald. Oseg returned to his original technique of considering the text of Hansel and Gretel as a factual account. The familiar opening obviously sets up the general terrain of the story. Once upon a time, there dwelt on the outskirts of a large forest a poor woodcutter with his wife and two children. 
The very next part of the story gave an indication to Oseg of what he thought might be a very veiled hint to the geography of the original location. Oh, father, said Hansel, I am looking at my little white cat, which is sitting up on the roof and wants to say goodbye to me. The wife said, Fool, that is not your little cat, that is the morning sun, which is shining on the chimneys. The inference which Oseg drew from this phrase was that the chimney must have been backlit in order to create such an effect, and therefore the woodcutter's house must have been to the east of the trees, with the path running west into the forest. Examining the geography of the forest, he further calculated that the house must have been on a hill. Oseg's diary records a remarkable discovery which he made on May the 10th, 1962, whilst walking in the forest. The path, he realised, was leading to a spot which looked very familiar. Oseg consulted the 1818 edition of the Grimm's Children's and Household Tales, and there was the very location. The trees in the forest were taller, but it was undoubtedly the same place. The following day, Oseg returned to the spot and struck out to the east, looking for evidence of the woodcutter's house. After some distance, however, the path led him to the edge of the autobahn, which had been recently constructed. Oseg carried out further research and discovered that a payment of compensation of 18,760 Deutschmarks had been made in 1954 to a Georg Tower who had owned a half-timbered house which was demolished to allow the autobahn to pass by. Oseg had to change tack, and so he instead decided to search for the place where the story said that the children had been left. He again went back to the original text, which said, We will lead the children out into the forest, where it is thickest. There we will make a fire for them. This appears to be nonsense, as any woodcutter who knew his business would certainly not light a fire in the thickest part of the forest. He would be sure to see his trade go up in smoke if he did. Oseg concluded that this was the sort of flawed logic which a professor such as Wilhelm Grimm might have written in retelling the story, and so he therefore decided to look instead for a clearing. He continued with the next element of the story as though it were true once again. The story tells that pebbles were used to leave a breadcrumb trail that could be followed, and so Oseg employed the services of an eight-year-old boy, who he approximated would be about the age of Hansel. He filled the boy's pockets with pebbles of the appropriate size. They're described by the Grimms as being the size of Batson, which is a type of coin. Starting where the house had once stood, the boy proceeded in the correct direction. He dropped a pebble every time he could only just see the previous one that he'd put down. Once the pebbles ran out, Oseg reasoned that they should have reached a clearing. However, they had not. Something was not right. Oseg ran the experiment again, but this time he carried and dropped the pebbles himself. Sure enough, the last pebble was dropped as he reached a meadow. What did this mean? The length of stride and height of Oseg over that of the boy meant that there was a wider gap between each pebble, and therefore the trail extended further than the first time. The inference from this was that, assuming he was on the right lines, and he had faith that he was, then the original Hansel and Gretel from whom the story came 
could not have been young children. They must have been adults. It was unlikely that any evidence would be found in the middle of the clearing, where the fire would have been, as too many other people would have been there since the original events. Oseg instead concentrated his search on the edges of the clearing where the trees met the meadow. After two days of searching, he found residue of a hemp string grown high up into the trunk of an oak tree. Below the string was evidence of a semicircular mark, rich in resin and obviously caused by repeated mechanical action. Going back to the original text, we find the following description. Since they heard the blows of the axe, they believed their father was close by. But it wasn't the axe, but a branch he had tied to a tree, which was moving by the wind. Oseg had the tree felled. A count of the rings used to roughly age trees gave a result of 355. Taking the age of the tree when the woodcutter tied the branch to it to be around 45 years, this gave a window for the original Hansel and Gretel to have lived of approximately the time of the Thirty Years' War, from 1618 to 1648. Using the further clue in the text for location that there was a great stretch of water between the woodcutter's house and the witch's cottage from which Gretel obtained crab shells for food, Oseg calculated that the river Ashaf, which flowed through the Spetsart forest, was the point of reference. Allowing for the fact that the children were said to have walked little more than two hours to reach home, a search area was able to be narrowed down to a few square kilometres. This he divided into a grid pattern through which he systematically hunted, using as a guide the idea that the witch who lived there would have needed to draw water from somewhere. After two months, on July the 10th, 1962, he found the remains of the witch's house. As well as the foundations of the dwelling, set 2.2 metres under the hill, which as before had striking resemblances to the original copper plate illustrations in the Grimm book, Oseg also discovered the foundations of four baking ovens. Using the footprint of the foundations, Oseg reconstructed a model of the witch's house, which proved to be a one-room dwelling of timber and loam, which would have been common construction methods in the Upper Hessian area. Moving then on to the ovens, a startling discovery was made on July the 15th when a female adult skeleton was uncovered in the bottom of oven number three. Unlike the fairy tale, where the witch was completely burned in her oven, the skull and the lower legs of this skeleton had been only partially consumed. Although compelling in itself, this was not the most important discovery that Oseg made, to the east of the house, he found an iron box buried in the ground. Opening the lid revealed the contents to be a number of blackened pieces of what proved to be gingerbread, along with baking tools and a handwritten recipe. Oseg also found the remains of door hinges, one of which showed signs of being broken by force, suggesting that someone had broken the door down. Georg Oseg surmised that two adults had come to the house, forced their way in, and murdered the woman. But he did not know why. It was a problem which he felt he couldn't solve on his own, 
and so he took all his findings for analysis by Professor Albert Vermeulen at the Anthropology Department of Leiden University and Dr Hartley Petchow of the Urbanheim Polytechnic Research Centre. The report on the human remains was interesting. It concluded that the woman was already dead when she was put into the oven, which had been wholly ineffective at destroying the remains, having been constructed for baking rather than higher temperature fire. Also, the analysis found that the woman had most likely been no older than 35, standing at a height of 5 foot 5, and with no obvious disfigurements. Not a good fit for the stereotypical witch of fairy tales. The similarly common idea of a witch living in isolation in a remote spot also seems to have been an unlikely premise if the stories were based in reality. Historical witches or healers lived in village communities, and when accusations were brought against them, this is where they were caught and interrogated. It made no sense to suggest that any woman, or man for that matter, would choose to live in such a remote place. The woman in the Spetsart forest could only have gone there with intention because she had something to hide. The fact that the woman was killed before being put into the oven, we would assume by being strangled or at least after a fight, led Oseg to conclude that Gretel could not have killed her, as in the original tale. She must have been working with Hansel, which meant that he could not have been secured in a cage. The evidence was all pointing to a premeditated event by two adults and the most obvious reason for doing so was appearing to be the gingerbread recipe. Oseg travelled to the research centre in Urbanheim and began baking gingerbread based on the discovered recipe. It proved to be consistent with the 300-year-old techniques of a Nuremberger Lepkuchen, that is, a speciality item from the bakeries in the Nuremberg area, which can still be found to this day. The key ingredient to the flavour turned out to be salts of hartshorn. Gradually, the story of the woman baking in the forest and being hunted and killed in an unsuccessful attempt to retrieve her recipe, which was hidden in the walls of the cottage, came together, as told in the introduction earlier. The final link was made when the original German text of the witch's first dialogue in the grim telling showed that the woman must have come from an area of hearts in the state of Saxony-Anhalt. Searching the archives here led to the discovery of a bound volume of parchments from 1597, describing the interrogation of Katharina Schraderin, known as Die Bakerhexer, or the Baker Witch, in the city of Gelnhausen on July the 15th, 1647. Such was the evidence of Georg Oseg's investigations, as laid out by Hans Traxler in his book. Claudia Schwaber summarises the suggested turn of events from the Spetsart Forest in this way, from Traxler's original work. Katharina is born in 1618 as the seventh child of a charcoal burner in Wernigerode. She invents the gingerbread in the Abbey of Quedlinburg, where she works in the kitchen until 1638. Hans Metzler, a baker by trade, tries to marry her to get a recipe. Because his advances become too intrusive, Katharina decided to leave the city. Hans then denounces her as a witch, and she is interrogated by the Inquisition and found innocent, as told by the Wernigerode manuscript. That failing, Metzler goes to Katerina's house in the woods, accompanied by his sister Greta, 
as a false witness and kills Katerina Schraderin. He does not find the recipe, so the murder was unnecessary. All he can find is some Lebkuchen. He takes some with him and tries to bake his own. Although Metzler is later tried for murder, the judges somehow believe his version of the man-eating witch and he's found innocent. He goes to Nuremberg, where he sells the gingerbread as the famous Nuremberger Lebkuchen. In the end, Hans dies as a wealthy citizen. Some facts point to the hypothesis that the Grimm brothers knew the truth, but concealed it for ethical reasons. Hans Traxler, in constructing this narrative, certainly produced a story of merit, arguably more involved and of more interest than the original fairy tale. So clever was its construction that it took in many people, some of whom failed to see the humorous side. What was put together as a scientific satire was taken as a scientific documentary. If you've listened to the episode of the podcast looking at mermaid folklore, this should be a familiar idea from the television mockumentaries that I discussed. One attorney at the time of publication, Joseph Sieber, sued Traxler for fraud after being misled by the book. Whole school classes made trips to the Spetsart Forest to look for the dig site, one travelling from as far away as Denmark. Many years after publication, Traxler still had weekly communications from people wanting to know the truth behind the book. The cultural office of Recklinghausen even invited Georg Oseg to a lecture. By choosing to work with a fairy tale in order to create a fictitious backstory, Hans Traxler was playing on a genre with an already extremely strong narrative trait, and this is why the satire works so well. Many fairy tales are watered-down versions of historical events which are too uncomfortable to hear when told in their true form, but they're used to teach lessons. Why should this have been seen as being any different from the others? There are often alternative tellings of fables, of course. During the famine years of 1315 to 1317, which swept across Europe, disease and death increased greatly, but so did cannibalism and infanticide. Desperate parents abandoned their children because they were left with no choice. It was an ugly time. The story of Hansel and Gretel could equally have developed from roots in these events. The publication of Traxler's book led to the creation of a new scholarly term, at least in his own pages, where he referred to fairy tale archaeology. In the real world, Vanessa Dusen calls the book a fictive non-fiction text, essentially the written version of a TV mockumentary. In this term, she implies that the work presents itself as a non-fiction text, but at the same time sets out to deliberately mislead the reader. There were clues in the text to demonstrate this. Among these, for example, we might use the fact that the investigation carries a reference to the tailor of Ulm. He was Olbrecht Ludwig Berblinger, the child of a poor family who wanted to be a watchmaker, but was sent to an orphanage aged 13 when his father died, where he was forced to become a tailor. Despite this, he retained his interest in mechanics, inventing the first jointed artificial limb in 1808. He was best known for inventing a hang glider-type flying machine, the failed demonstration of which led to him being pitched into the Danube River. The clue lies in the fact that Burblinger lived between 1770 and 1829, falling into the river in 1811, and so 
could not be referenced in a case which was supposed to have occurred in the 17th century. As an interesting side note, we may note that there are a few versions of the story of the Tailor of Ulm, and so again, although in this case the root of the tale is genuine, embellishment and transmission of this leads to more folkloric elements. The story of the truth behind Hansel and Gretel does not quite end here. In 2010, Ulm Museum held an exhibition where they displayed the alleged findings of the archaeological expedition, including a charred rolling pin and the witch's secret gingerbread recipe. The exhibition was created in cooperation with the Institute of European Ethnology and Cultural Studies at the University of Marburg. Kurt Verberger, a member of staff from the archaeological collection, baked the fragments of what were displayed as historical gingerbread in his own home. The exhibition went some way to continue the story of the book, and so it did not blatantly tell visitors the truth of the story, but rather included clues, such as contemporary reactions from readers of the book. One of these stated, My gingerbread dream is now dissolved. In 2012, Phillips University Marburg, who'd worked with the Ulm Museum a couple of years previously, hosted a small exhibition about the book in their cafe. Among the exhibits in the two glass cases were the invented court records surrounding the murder. These exhibitions, and indeed Traxler's book itself, are essentially about lies and truths, and the transformations involved from one to the other. The cases teach us important lessons about thinking critically when dealing with both scientific and sensationalist claims. But it also provides an interesting case study for folklorists of how lines become blurred and how stories can, and do, enter into belief systems, such as was the case with the Slenderman invention. Once they are there, they will never truly leave. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening. <laughs>